You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning, we talked to acting state epidemiologist Sarah Kemble about the latest with the vaccine rollout and the different variants that are being identified across the globe. This week, Maui Health reported that it lost more than 1,300 doses of the vaccine because of a refrigeration issue. And we're hearing more and more about the spread of variants in the U.S. and abroad. All this as our visitor count is getting some lift during spring break. Should we be worried? Here's Kemble. I think that really right now it's variants versus how quickly we can get herd immunity vaccine coverage. And so that really is the core fight that we're fighting right now in the COVID pandemic. Um, As far as variants are concerned, um, in Hawaii, we are fortunate that the state laboratory uh, invested early in standing up whole genome sequencing back in the summer of 2020. And so they had uh, quite a bit of experience under their belt as new variants began to emerge and have stood up since January a system where we can sample um, 75 specimens per week for whole genome sequencing and from that get um, a, 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 a basically a representative sample of what kinds of variants we are seeing in the islands. And um, over the last few weeks, we have been seeing uh, some of the new variants of concern, variants of interest emerging in Hawaii, um, and that includes the B117 variant, which is from the UK, detected first in the UK, the B1351 variant, which is detected first in South Africa, and a couple of other variants, one being a California uh, origin variant B1429 and its cousin B1427. These are two that were initially being tracked in California because they were seen spreading fairly quickly in communities in California. And now there's recent research showing that they may, in fact, um, have a mutation that confers increased transmissibility, similar to um, concerns with B17. And this, just this morning, I was reading about a mutant variant. So all of the variants are, are called that because of mutations that occur in the virus genome. And um, all of them have multiple mutations from the wild-type strain. Uh, These variants are of concern because they have a combination of mutations that either confer increased transmissibility or um, raise concerns that you need more antibody to overcome them, whether that's natural immunity antibody or perhaps vaccine antibody. Well, it just sounds scary when you hear, you know, double mutant, and you're like, what does this mean? And so sometimes in some viruses, uh, both things have been detected together, and that's, of course, a concern. There's also now with the B1429, this California variant, a mutation that seems to confer some uh, resistance to some of the monoclonal antibody treatment. So jurisdictions that are seeing high proportions of that B1429 circulating are advised to consider using different monoclonal antibodies to which the virus may already be resistant. I feel like we are in a race, you know, we're, we're just running down the track, trying to get vaccinated and looking back uh, over our shoulder, you know, just as these uh, mutants pop up. And, you know, we're concerned about the spread here because we're seeing an uptick in visitors, you know, this month. Are you worried that we're going to see a surge in cases in a couple of weeks when spring break is over? I think it is likely we will see some uptick in cases following spring break with all the travel that's going on. And because we are learning that some of these variants that have made their way here do spread more quickly uh, wild-type virus. So for those two reasons, and, you know, we've just moved into Tier 3 in Honolulu. So there's been a little bit of relaxation around restaurants, some of the other settings. All of that combined and, and also understanding that we aren't yet at herd immunity with vaccine. Uh, does mean we probably will see some rise in cases. Now, our hope would be um, if we uh, have vaccinated the most vulnerable in our population to a high degree, that we see less rise in hospitalizations and deaths accompanying rise in cases. That being said, I certainly would not want to take that for granted. And I think it's really important right now that we still uh, really use our common sense in interacting with others socially, and keeping our physical distancing, keeping the masks on, all of that is still critically important right now. And I think we worry for Maui because, you know, they're struggling over there and trying to contain their cases, and yet they're getting so many more visitors, and, you know, they've got limited, you know, medical facilities. Are there any efforts, you know, to step up over there? 
Yeah, absolutely. We've really been putting a lot of the focus right now of our uh, case investigation and contact tracing on Maui and trying to really establish where are we seeing these cases arise, how can we make sure that our vaccine plan is also targeted to those settings where we're seeing the most cases. In particular, the move to make hotel, restaurant, and bar workers the leading edge of 1C has to do with that. We're, that's where we're seeing transmission right now on Maui in particular, as well as on other islands, including Oahu. Um, and so getting uh, workers in those settings vaccinated now is critically important. There are some who feel that maybe we should be getting more information about the clusters when it's at a restaurant or in a, a hospitality setting, that, that people should know the name of the restaurant, you know, the efforts to contact trace. I mean, you know, th that's important, you know, to this community because we do want to quarantine if we've been exposed. And the, right. you know, rather right. than, than, than scare everybody and they stay away from the restaurants, if you identified, you know, specifically which restaurant that, you know, then that would make it easier. I certainly understand that feeling. What I will say, though, is it's really important that we have humility in the face of this virus and that we understand and know what we don't know. So one of the really important things about clusters is, although we certainly have a great team that can investigate and be on top of clusters as soon as we're aware of them, we also know that there are always going to be clusters that didn't get brought to our attention for whatever reason. Somebody didn't go to get tested. Um, or maybe we find out later because somebody got tested after they were sick for a week um, or we weren't able to reach someone in the first try because they weren't picking up their phone. So there are going to be clusters that aren't yet there um, either in our records or on the news. And if you name one restaurant, people will tend to um, think that, oh, okay, um, if I stay away from that restaurant, I'm going to be fine. But actually that's not the case. I think for us, we decided it's much more important to show what types of issues lead to transmission so people can understand that the risk is out there in that type of setting, regardless of whether we name setting A today or setting B tomorrow. Um, it's really important to understand that restaurants are a risk factor uh, for COVID-19 and the reasons why. And a lot of that has been actually for the workers back in the kitchens or behind the bar. Those are the people who often can't avoid being in close contact with each other, and that's where we see the most. Hence, the push to vaccinate workers in those settings primarily right now, because that's where we're really seeing risk. Uh, we want to make sure that people understand what kinds of activities are risky rather than having a lighting on a particular place and thinking that because they went next door, they're going to be fine. Can we talk about vaccines? Because I understand that initially we were told that we probably wouldn't be getting any Johnson & Johnson for a couple of weeks, but uh, I understand that we've got some, and so some of the vaccine clinics are offering it. Yeah, we're excited to be getting more um, Johnson & Johnson in. Every new shipment of vaccine is more opportunity to get more shots into arms, uh, so we're definitely happy to be getting that out. What about the numbers on uh, wasted doses? Oh, you know, we saw the information that came out from Maui how, uh, unfortunately, a number of doses were compromised because of a you know, rich refrigeration. Yeah, vaccine has been absolutely precious, so it's been a real priority to emphasize avoiding wastage. And our clinical sites have tried really hard to do that. I would say it's, it's unfortunate what happened, and certainly the medical center is working to resolve any issues and make sure that would not happen again. I think that's the most important thing is we've got to take away the lessons learned from um, those types of events. Um, but overall, uh, the percent of doses wasted here in Hawaii has been well under 1% of doses wasted. And it just goes to show the um, care with which people are taking to make sure vaccine is treated like liquid gold and that um, if there's any doses left in a vial, they're finding other people to come in and, and get those doses. Are we doing a good job in tracking that? Yeah, the, the vaccine administration management system that we're using has providers enter in exactly which doses were administered to whom, and doses that aren't accounted for have to be, well, doses that didn't go into arms have to be accounted for in that system. And so we can see in the system whether it was because of what a vial was broken or they were unable to use all the doses in a vial or events like a temperature being off like this. Now, on some of the islands, they are actually lowering the uh, age uh, limit, the age requirement 
for eligibility for vaccines. I think on the Big Island, it's like 50. I saw something on Kauai yesterday, also lowered. Here on Oahu, obviously a little more of a challenge because we've got a larger you know, population base and probably more people uh, in the you know, upper range that still need to get vaccinated. Yeah, we really, um, as a state, are working hard with the counties to have people move largely together in step. We're not trying to keep everyone, you know, shackled at the ankles, but we do want to make sure that as a state we are largely moving in unison. So we were surprised to hear about that. We, uh, we are working with the counties to make sure we're getting out an equitable vaccine. I heard something the other day, and I don't know if this is accurate, but they said half the people, uh, half of our population is over 60, and the other half is under 60. But, you know, imagine that is different from island to island. Yes, the age composition of each island differs a little, and I'm sorry, I don't have those numbers in front of me. But that is part of why we also track the progress towards vaccination by age group. You can see on the website how each county is doing with 75-plus and then with 60-plus. How soon do you think the Department of Health in the state will move to lower the age eligibility? Well, it really comes down to supply. Supply has been improving bit by bit over the past week, uh, but we're still not at a point where it can be everybody go to your usual provider record and get your shot with your regular doctor. Uh, when we get to that point, then then really... Um, vaccine should just be flowing out the door. But right now, um, we're still in a situation of limited supply and hence the need to kind of gate things. And and the reason for that is we, it, it actually is driven by wanting to get a shot into everyone's arm who wants that shot um, and to do it as quickly as possible. And it's a, a matter of being coordinated and organized. If we can move steadily and swiftly through the different groups, we can actually move more quickly than if we try to open things wide up and clog things up at a bottleneck. I did see a report that praised Hawaii and a couple other states that have moved cautiously rather than, you know, the chaotic scramble of the, uh, in other states. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, we're, we're just approaching this with humility. It's a very difficult job, and we want to make sure that we're getting vaccine out quickly and fairly. So we're going to continue uh, working with all the partners to get that done. Anything else you want to underscore? Just get your shot when it's your turn, and uh, please, in the meantime, stick with wearing your mask keeping your distance from others, and avoid large gatherings. Well, just on a personal note, do you know of anybody, you know, in your circle or in your, your family that's either gotten COVID or, or unfortunately may have died from COVID? Yeah, I have actually lost a relative to COVID in a um, community care home here in Hawaii. So it hits close to home for all of us. I have another aging relative uh, that contracted COVID at a nursing home on the mainland early on. So. I think for all we've all been touched by this pandemic. That was Sarah Kemble, acting epidemiologist with the State Department of Health. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. It's Backyard Quiz Time. today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of true identities. Many places around Hawaii are better known for the English language names given to them. Diamond Head was known to Oahu's first inhabitants as Leahi. The Hawaii area was originally known as Mauna Lua. The same is true on the neighbor islands. One of the most popular beaches on the Big Island's Kohala Coast is best known for the man 
It was named after Samuel Mahuka Spencer. He was born in the area in 1875. He served as a chairman and executive officer of the Hawaii County Board of Supervisors from 1924 and 1944. His namesake, Spencer Beach Park, offers excellent swimming and snorkeling and plenty of shade. A long, shallow offshore reef keeps out high waves and strong currents, making it a perfect beach for young kids. If you were to ask the throngs of people who visit to swim, picnic, or camp every year what the name of the park is, it's highly likely they'll reply, Spencer Beach. But if you were to look at maps of the area from the early 20th century, you'll find the White Sand Beach with a different moniker. So what is Spencer Beach's original name? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities by supporting affordable housing with support for nonprofits such as Honolulu Habitat for Humanity. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. pandemic was part of a discussion at last week's safety conference in Waikiki sponsored by the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association. Honolulu police and private security groups also took part in that annual meeting. We talked to Mufi Hanneman, former Honolulu mayor and head of the tourism group, about the strategy to combat crime given the expected surge of visitors this month. Chief Ballard was particularly concerned of uh, human trafficking. It continues to take place and she urged uh, the hoteliers to make sure that we are much more vigilant in identifying people that may look suspicious and to get out in front of it. So fortunately, we've done a series of uh, seminars pre-COVID. We've also put together a handbook instruction of how we want to deal with human trafficking uh, because we, uh, we want to be part of the community response to stamp, up, stamp out this, uh, uh, this horrible crime that's being committed uh, a lot of it. Uh, to our, our youngsters. Secondly, she also says she's detecting in, in, uh, an increase in, in gambling, uh, gambling houses in, in Waikiki, and uh, pledged HPD uh, support to snap that out. And obviously, uh, any kind of illegal activity that takes place, fully support. And then they have a really proactive initiative going forward that is HPD to uh, deal with homelessness. And homelessness continues to be a vexing problem. And so there was quite a bit of discussion on that. Uh, HPD has a laser-like focus uh, on that particular issue, focusing on the pavilions that you see along Cohill Beach and trying to get social service providers involved early on in the process before they go down the path of uh, living a fine uh, or uh, incarcerating them. And so we totally support that. We'll get behind that and see how we can assist that effort. We. Hawaii Hotel Visitor Industry Security Association, which is made up of security personnel at all the hotels, uh, is a major co-sponsor of this conference you know, we, uh, with uh, HLTA, and so it involves their assistance in Kukua. We have an ambassador's program with the Waikiki Business Improvement District, which is another co-sponsor uh, of the conference, and so we're all going to work together much more diligently, again, to get out in front of this issue dealing with the homelessness. We, we have a new city administration, there's a new council chair. They, both Mayor Blanchardi and Council Chair Tommy Waters also came before us, you know, expressing interest in, in, in working with us all the way around in rooting out uh, crime uh, in Waikiki. So it's uh, obviously, it's, it's been a decrease, but you know, we do know that the pandemic has exacerbated the homeless problem. More people are out of work. Uh, therefore, we want to be proactive about not just basically moving them out of the park, what have you, but at least try to identify, hook them up with a social services agency. And then uh, if they still refuse the help, uh, that's what HPD has told us. Then they'll go down that path of, okay, we're going to fine you or uh, we're going to have to incarcerate you. We also had some discussions on shoplifting. We had the Retail Merchants Association 
Dina Yamaki and, and others participating in a panel. Well, we had the uh, first deputy of uh, our prosecuting attorney's office, uh, uh, Tom Brady, represents Steve Baum, who was uh, at the city council uh, trying to get his budget through, which uh, obviously is a major priority. Right. But um, that discussion centered on, you know, how do we motivate and get our residents being willing, more willing, uh, to be a witness And among the other topics of concern, keeping an eye out for any evidence of youth gangs moving into the district, as well as watching out for our missing teens so they don't become victims on the streets of Waikiki. We did talk to Chief Susan Ballard earlier this week. Here's what she had to say about the efforts to boost law enforcement in the area. She was to meet with the officers from the Waikiki district today to underscore the department's efforts to combat crime. Now that Waikiki is starting to come back, visitors are starting to come back, you know, that we want to continue working with the hotels because they're our eyes and ears and things, you know, can happen. And we've seen them, you know, happen in the past when it came to, you know, sex trafficking, you know, because of obviously with uh, the Internet and everything else, you know, you don't have the folks walking on the streets as much as they did before. Now it's, you know, kind of appointment based and, you know, online. And gambling, you know, we've already, I know that, uh, you know, we've already had uh, one um, uh, gambling location that we uh, shut down in Waikiki, and we just wanted to, once again, make sure everybody is aware, and if they see something, to make sure they let us know, because, you know, this whole gambling thing is starting to spread out, not just in in the business districts, but residential areas, you know, everywhere on the island, not just, you know, not just Waikiki. And Jennifer Nakayama is the executive director of the Waikiki Business Improvement District Association. She stressed the need to document incidents with the homeless community. Whether you're big or small in Waikiki, major hotels down to the minor mom-and-pop family-run businesses, all are important to document because these infractions, uh, whether it's petty theft, shoplifting, um, aggressive behavior, either documenting on your own internal reports or what have you, or to file a official HPD police report, because what that does is it is building a portfolio. And from a court perspective, there needs to be a substantial portfolio in time and chronology build up to make a case uh, for these particular individuals to go under the ACT uh, or guardianship. You know, it has to show that there is a substantial need to take over this individual person's uh, rights when it comes to medical treatment. You know, you're one business that may think, oh, you know, this happens every day and then nothing comes of it. It does, but it's it's a small little building block that you're part of the bigger Waikiki picture. So if we could just ask that that continues uh, or that starts with all businesses in Waikiki in particular to really build your documentation. And if we need to, you, you're free to send that over to IHS or myself at the bid uh, directly, and it really does help build this portfolio. So we we know that it takes time. Everything seems to take time in, in this uh, government process, but that that's one way that the business community and even residents, uh, so condo towers, same things. It doesn't just have to be a business. If there are in, infractions that you feel uh, that need to be addressed, Uh, then please document and, again, send over to IHS or the bid, uh, and we'll we'll try to build portfolios from there. Honolulu City Council Chair Tommy Waters joined the conference. He talked about a list of complaints uh, coming into his office about the problems in Waikiki. I just want to point out a couple of things that my office is working on that is relevant to what's going on in Waikiki. Crime, it continues to be a problem in our community. And we must keep fighting together, working together to solve these problems. You know, we're talking about pedestrian safety. The ghost scooters are coming into town again. As far as uh, the other complaints that my office has been getting concerning the kiosks, it seems to be an attractive nuisance. And uh, it's been attracting a lot of homeless folks there and perhaps a potential of the COVID virus. Homelessness continues to be a problem in Waikiki, especially in pavilions two and four, the bus stop at Pau Kalani and Ohua, 
the Alawai Promenade and Alawai Bridge area and various 7-Eleven locations. Also, shopping carts, again. You know, I found right now we don't have a supermarket in Waikiki. So do we actually need shopping carts in Waikiki? Panhandling continues continue to be a problem in Waikiki and we're working on that as well. Trespassing, using parking lots or private parking spaces for sleep or shelter or for urination or defecation continues to be a problem. And increased violent behavior accosting residents with weapons. Noise nuisance continues to be a problem, um, especially with mopeds without mufflers. And again, unmasked tourists at residents. I know it's spring break and we got a lot of visitors, but we have to be vigilant. Remember the three W's, wear your mask, wash your hands and watch your distance. And fallen coconuts, again, that's something the city can work on as well. Let's keep vigilant, let's keep fighting because we live in the most beautiful place in the world and Waikiki is one of the best spots for our tourists to come. And I will continue to work with you folks to ensure that Waikiki will be one of the safest places in the world for our visitors to visit. And those were just some of the voices from the Waikiki Security Conference held last week. We'll have links on our website if you want to watch the conference online. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company whose more than 680 employees are committed to serving the community with a dedication to safety. Learn more at parhawaii.com. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ward Village, committed to creating community and supporting businesses in the islands. Learn more at wardvillage.com. Our state capital, closed to the public, but not to lobbyists. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Level on the line today. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. I'm, I'm actually calling in from the capital basement. Yes, you're one of the few media outlets that actually, uh, you're a tenant in that building. Yep, that's correct. Us along with the Star Advertiser and the Associated Press. Well, you know, I'm certainly glad that you've got eyes in there uh, as you report to work every day. Uh, but uh, your article is about how, well, the the general capitol building is close to the public. Uh, lobbyists are coming and going. Yes. So we heard we heard concerns from some people that there were lobbyists visiting the capitol earlier this year. Uh, earlier in March, I had asked the state for a list of individuals had been permitted entry to the Capitol, and I'm not talking about legislators or their staff, a guest list of sorts. Eventually, that request got forwarded to the House Speaker's Office, which provided me a sign-in sheet for the month of February. And on that, on those sign-in sheets, there were government officials, names of business leaders, and as our story points out today, a number of lobbyists were able to get in-person meetings with lawmakers in the month of February. Now, I recall interviewing Sandy Ma, uh, the uh, head of the Common Cause Hawaii group, about access, you know, just as the legislature was getting underway. And she said she was on the list that she could get in as a guest. Um, you know, but uh, it, it is interesting just to see, you know, who got in to see, you know, key lawmakers at what particular times around, you know, maybe critical legislative deadlines. That's right, and I spoke to Sandy. She's been uh, the person raising alarm about this. And Sandy Ma, by the way, is also a registered lobbyist who was on the guest list, like you pointed out. And she told me she stopped after, you know, she kind of realized the hypocrisy of the idea. But it is interesting to look at the list. You know, there's a number of high-profile lobbyists that were making trips to the Capitol just in February. 
the top of mind is capital consultants that Bruce Copeland shop and Bruce Copeland was a former you know agent to Abercrombie uh, now one runs one of the largest lobbying firms in Hawaii we saw that there were an increase in visits around the times of um, these two legislative deadlines in mid-February when sales start to drop off and you can kind of expect that you know you want to get input on measures the that are advancing and you know if there's something that you don't want to go forward you kind of need to make that known to the lawmaker and uh, try to get some roadblocks thrown in the way well you know after covering the legislature for a long time i know what's key to getting stories out down there is you've got to be down there because you never know when you're going to be able to spot a lawmaker uh, who's got a really important bill before you know a key committee and if you can you know uh, snag him in the hallway to ask. Uh, I mean, that's uh, that's how you get a story down there at the Capitol. It is, and that's why I think it's still so important for media to have access to lawmakers. And that's kind of what this story is about. It's about access. In in some cases, individuals are able to get in-person meeting with, meetings with lawmakers, and in other cases, you know, they can't. And it's not to say that the lawmakers aren't meeting with their constituents. They certainly are, you know. I, uh, I've heard from some that they're still going out to meet them in the community, social distancing, of course, and people can still contact their lawmakers to meet remotely. But the, the issue of the in-person visit, you know, for a lobbyist, having that in-person interaction and maintaining those relationships with lawmakers is paramount. I mean, it's how you go about doing your job. And even for them, I've heard that they're having challenges uh, communicating now during the pandemic. Yeah, you know, there, but there's nothing like face to face. I mean, you can always call people up, but uh, you know, getting to uh, look into somebody's eyes and and have a discussion about something, uh, there's no substitute for that. Exactly, and in years past, you know, you'd have those lobby days or or at the end of session when a group would try to muster up support, they'd go door to door, talking with lawmakers and try to you know get them to either support. Or oppose something, and now the average citizen can't really do that anymore because the Capitol is closed, the committee rooms are closed. They can't, you know, just waltz up to their um, legislator's office and chat them up about something. You either need to schedule one appointment and call remotely, or try to get on one of these guest lists and get approval to enter the Capitol. Yeah, and I know uh, the lawmakers uh, have gotten vaccinated. I think you and I are still waiting our turn, uh, but hopefully uh, we will look. To the day when the state capitol is open again. Thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. We have been talking to reporter Blaze Lovell with today's reality check. To read his stories and look at that list, visit civilbeat.org. A bill calling for the elimination of the Tobacco Trust Fund is up for a vote this afternoon before the Senate Health and Higher Education Committees. Decision-making was put off after a hearing yesterday. If it's voted out today, it will head to the powerful Senate Ways and Means Committee. We talked to Danita Garcia of the Hawaii Harmon Reduction Center, a recipient of the funds. But we start off with Lola Irvine, the administrator for the State Health Department's Chronic Disease Prevention Division. The fund sets aside millions of dollars for programs to prevent nicotine addiction or to get people to kick the smoking habit. This bill would actually completely repeal the Tobacco Prevention and Control Trust Fund and take the monies that are in there, which is being invested and managed by the Hawaii Community Foundation, and put it into general funds. It would be gone. And um, so, so we would not have these funds to use for tobacco prevention anymore. And so... What are we talking about? What kind of money and what kinds of programs do we fund? So there's $41 million in unencumbered cash that's in um, the trust fund that's being managed by the Hawaii Community Foundation. There are 16 community-based grantees, and so they provide free cessation support and um, counseling. That's what Donita does, and it's for all neighbor islands. Every neighbor island is represented, as well as Oahu. And then there are 13 prevention grants. So middle and high school students can learn about the dangers of vaping 
and also learn skills not to start. It is based on an evidence-based program out of Stanford University. Seven of those programs are on the neighbor islands. Wow, okay. And so, Danita, talk about, you know, your organization. What does it do? My organization, Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center, and with my program, Hawaii's Last Drug, I not only deal with the general public, but I also go to two rehab places and one health center. And I'm, I'm getting ready to go into the state hospital, and I do tobacco sensation program teaching there. And I teach people about the hazards of smoking, you know, and and I supply them with uh, nicotine replacement therapies, you know, and every week it's a different topic on the hazards and circumstances of your circumstances of smoking. On a personal level, I've lost five family members to smoking. And myself, you know, I'm very lucky that I found the program that I did because most people will not quit smoking on their own. You know, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of courage to quit smoking on your own, especially when you've been smoking for many years. And if I wouldn't have found this program, I probably wouldn't have quit smoking when I did. Uh, It saved my life, you know, and that's what these monies do. They save people's lives. And I'm very passionate about this because I lost my mother, my father, my brother, my husband, and my sister all to smoking. And if they would have had these programs when they died, um, maybe they wouldn't have died, you know. So that's why it's so important for me through my job to do what I do. I went to school for law, but this is what I'm doing because this was where my, my passion, my heart is to save people and their families from having to go through exactly what I did for, a, 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 for something that's preventable. You know, and I know it's a lot easier said than done to quit smoking, but, but it can be done. And I smoked for 46 years, and I've been quit almost five years. That's what this money that is given to these programs does. It saves lives. There's no joking about this. And Lola, you know, we've seen the studies that talk about the vaping statistics here in the state. And it is kind of scary when you see how young, you know, the the students are, you know, who are being targeted with these uh, fruit-flavored e-cigarettes. And e-liquids, yes. And they are often packaged to be very attractive in fruit and candy flavors. They're also very affordable, and Hawaii currently does not have any policies on that increase the price of these products through taxation, and we also allow the fruit and candy flavors, which we don't allow with cigarettes. Our youth have responded, right? It's not like the old days where if you were sitting down and watching TV or you're reading the paper, the advertising, parents and kids would see it. But now the social influencers can reach our children through our, their handheld devices and market these products. And so the parents don't see what the kids are exposed to, and the kids have responded. A third of our high school students say they use it. What's alarming for us is that the girls are using it at higher rates, and the Native Hawaiian students, 42% said they use it. Um, so, you know, in terms of the health disparities we see, it, our youth becoming addicted to nicotine at such an early age their brains are going to be then impacted in terms of being primed for substance abuse by nicotine. Also, it shortens their ability to um, retain memory, and so it's going to impact their memory retention, their attention. It'll contribute to mood disorders and disrupt their sleep. So you believe that if the special fund disappears, that it's going to be more difficult for you to get future funding? I mean, it sounds like, you know, these programs are are worthwhile. And I know the House Finance Chair, though, Sylvia Liu, doesn't really care for these special funds. She just thinks that we ought to have better control over it and, you know, about how they're spent. So, yes, if we lose these funds, we will not have the ability to provide then um, cessation programs for adults and for youth because now we've started, as of January, a text program for youth um, to quit vaping. We have only one general funded position in the Department of Health for tobacco programs, and we don't have the capacity to do what we can working through the Hawaii Community Foundation that does grant making. We just don't have that kind of infrastructure. The Hawaii Community Foundation is also required to use competitive, accountable, transparent ways of um, you know, letting out the RFPs and to do the selection. They are very accountable and transparent with the funds. We also have a Tobacco Prevention and Control Advisory Board that with the Department of Health then approves a state plan 
that then the Hawaii Community Foundation relies on to then conduct and guide their cessation programs and the prevention programs. So we work really closely together. Yeah, we won't. We would not have the resources, and the Department of Health does not have the infrastructure. Okay, so that's that's your big, your strongest argument, I guess, is that you the infrastructure isn't there, so that if the special fund was to disappear tomorrow, this program couldn't get off the ground. No, we would not. And to have so many cessation grantees on the Hawaii Tobacco Quit Line go away, we could not reconstruct this infrastructure. It would be like cutting down a big, beautiful, fruitful tree all the branches would come down and the Department of Health would not be able to rebuild that tree. That's an interesting analogy. And Donita, how many people do you folks reach? I reach almost every demographic in Hawaii. Um, the mentally uh, mentally challenged people, the, the, the drug addicted and alcoholic uh, person, the Native Hawaiian population, the LBGT community. I reach a number of people just in my two treatment centers that I go into. On a weekly basis, I'm reaching at least 60 people. Then in the health center that I'm going to, I'm reaching at least 10 people a week. So, uh, and then with the general public that comes through my through my company and my friends, I have a lot of friends that have come through that have quit smoking. It's been amazing. And then them the introducing me to other friends. On a, on a weekly basis, I'm reaching at least 100 people, average. And then uh, what's available for folks on the neighbor islands? For neighbor islands, I reach them too because a lot of them are in these groups that I'm doing, and I'm able to mail them nicotine replacement therapies. Even people that go to the mainland, if they need, if they don't have a supplier over there, I mail it to the mainland. I make sure that I can reach every single piece of person. I will go out and meet them, or they will come to me at my office, or I even let them come to my my place, um, or I'll meet halfway, or once again I mail it to them. So there's no way that anyone individual that comes in contact with my organization or my program cannot be supplied with the counseling and the nicotine replacement therapy. And is it the same snapshot that, that you don't have the framework if this funding disappears quickly? Uh, no, if we don't have this, this funding, my program would probably have to cease, you know, because that's how my company um, is, is, is sustained is from grants from organizations that that supply, you know, the funds for tobacco treatment. And Lola, you've seen this bill come up before. We have, and actually the Department of Health, our program that's prevention used to be on the tobacco settlement special funds and we were switched to general funds, which we're okay with. But this is a trust fund that was set up specifically for tobacco prevention and control, and it's a great nexus. It's the reason why we sued the tobacco industry for all the harms and deaths that Hawaii experienced. And, you know, there are folks that have come out for the elimination of special funds in general, not just the tobacco fund. The Tax Foundation of Hawaii thinks that we should eliminate these special funds because there's all kinds of money squirreled away in so many different places. Yeah, and these monies are really visible, and we do have a publicly accessible tobacco prevention and control advisory board that meets on a regular basis. And so on... If the legislators would like regular reports that are actually created specifically for them and not just for the public, we can do that. We, All of the programs are evaluated, and so um, we're willing to also summarize all the evaluation reports and also provide it to the legislature. These are dollars well spent. We've saved the state over a billion dollars in health care costs um, with the number of adults who've come through and who have quit smoking, the pregnant women who have quit, and the youth who have not started tobacco use. Okay, so you think this is a short-sighted doing away with this fund? Well, the long view is we would sure like to help our youth live tobacco-free lives, and um, these dollars we hope will remain dedicated for that purpose. That was Lola Irvine from the State Health Department and also Donita Garcia, Uh, Her group, Hawaii Harm and Reduction Center, receives money from the Tobacco Trust Fund. The bill to do away with the special fund is to be voted on this afternoon in the Senate.
This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the Laysan albatross, also known as the moli. Laysan albatross, or moli, are beautiful seabirds with wingspans greater than six feet that helps them soar for days over the ocean without landing. They're incredibly graceful in flight, but a bit clumsy on land, which is why they were long ago called goonie birds. They have mostly bright white heads and bodies and charcoal black wings with pinkish bills and feet. They find their first mate around the age of seven and remain with them for life unless one of the pair dies. They disappeared long ago from the main Hawaiian islands because they nest on the ground in colonies and are extremely vulnerable to all sorts of predators, including rats, dogs, and humans. Recently, though, there have been successful efforts to reintroduce them to Kauai and Oahu. Molis still breed in large numbers across the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, with nearly a million birds counted on Midway Island alone. This includes a female named Wisdom, the oldest wild bird known in the world. Laysan albatross feed mostly on fish eggs and squid that migrate near the surface of the ocean at night. This feeding behavior makes them susceptible to plastic marine debris, which they mistake for food and feed to their chicks, which may cause them to die. Moli are associated with the god Lono, and the return to land every year in the fall to nest signals the beginning of the makahiki season. This is also the best time to hear the various whining and groaning types of calls, as well as the bill clapping, which is part of their impressive courtship displays. Public Radio. I'm Patrick Hart from UH Hilo Biology Department. Special thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for today's field recordings of the Laysan albatross, also known as the Goonie Bird, and a shout out to Wisdom, the female albatross and the oldest wild bird in the northern hemisphere. At 70 years young, she just hatched another chick this month. Manu Minute, Hawaii Public Radio's new weekly feature on Hawaii Songbirds is now a podcast. Listen to the sounds of island birds and learn about their environment and conservation. Subscribe to Manu Minute through Apple. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of Hawaii's original place names. Spencer Beach Park sits just below Pu'ukohola Heao in the Kauai area of the Big Island. It's one of the few white sand beaches on the island, offering a nice change from the usually rocky shores along the island's western coast. The park attracts plenty of locals and visitors each year with its calm waters, shade trees, campground area, modern bathroom facilities, you know, and uh, our producer, Russell Subiano, he grew up on the Big Island, and he said he remembers Spencer Beach mostly for being the place where he was stung by a Portuguese man of war. The park was named after one of his distant relatives, Samuel Mahuka Spencer. He lived in the area from his birth in 1875 until his death in 1960. He served in several Hawaii County offices. He also worked for the Territory of Hawaii. And while he'll be remembered well into the future as the namesake of the beach, those who lived on the Big Island prior to his death likely knew the small stretch of coastline by its original name, Ohaiula, which was finally included as part of the park's official name in 2003. Lots of calls on this one, uh, but congrats to Casey Stahl-Smith from the Big Island. Apparently she was just driving by Ohaiula when she called, and she says she runs there too. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for us, uh, let us know it. Talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Others, an exhibition of isolationist-era Japanese prints that considers the importance of cross-cultural understanding. HonoluluMuseum.org I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn how to get policy passed and catch up with the post-pandemic legislative process. This time, we'll talk to the folks at the public access room and see how they continue to support the public to ensure their voices are heard. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. It's been a year since the COVID-19 pandemic reached our shores, and we're starting to see signs of hope. We still have a long way to go. HPR continues to keep you connected, serving as your eyes and ears to the world. We help you keep yourself and your family safe and navigate these uncertain times. Help us move forward together by becoming a new sustaining member at $10 a month. Give online quickly and easily at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we have to go now, but tomorrow we'll be hearing from residents of remote areas across the state as they reflect on the last year, 2020 Interrupted. When we will leave you with a listener call in from the Big Island to answer our question of the month. Hi, my name is Guy. I'm calling from Kamala, Hawaii, and I'm answering the question regarding when is the last time I felt normal pre-pandemic. And I can literally give the exact date. It was February 29th, so it was leap day. 2020 and it was a senior night at my college so a night that our school throws for the seniors to go out and have fun and I just remember I went out with all of my really good friends and we were all drinking like in this crowded bar and of course no one was thinking about masks or social distancing and that was one of the last weekends we had before our spring break and that's when our college ended up closing so so yeah that was probably the last time I felt normal pre-pandemic. Do you have a memory, a pre-pandemic memory you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. (music) 